Hello, and welcome to the On Time Autism Intervention Podcast, a podcast for parents of children three and younger, dedicated to providing accurate information about autism, autism intervention, and guidance for your new path. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Washington's On-Time Autism Intervention, or OTAI. We're a collaborative project led by the UW's Autism Center and Herring Center for Inclusive Education. Our work is supported by the Seattle Foundation and aims to increase equitable access to timely diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder and evidence-based intervention for young children and their families. We are so glad you're here. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the On Time Autism Intervention Podcast. Hi, Jess. Hey, Ashley. How are you today? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm super excited about our episode today. I'm excited too, but you can't be that good because you said your son is homesick today. He is. Yes, he is homesick. So hopefully we don't have any guest appearances <laughs> as, <laughs> as we record today. Oh, that's um, okay. That'll be fine. We'd like to see him here. It him. just, you know, comes with Come, comes along with the territory these days. <laughs> well, I'm glad you made it. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm, ex- as I said, I am excited to be here. So, um, all right, well, let's, let's go ahead and get started. So as a reminder to our listeners, we spent our first five episodes talking about the process of noticing those early signs of autism, what a referral for a diagnostic evaluation looks like, um, and we've also heard from a few parents about their experiences at different points in the diagnostic process. We did take a brief moment to kind of pause for mindfulness for you, for parents. Um, and today we're getting back to a little bit more of our regular, regular type of episodes. So at the suggestion of one of our listeners, we're going to actually talk about some common myths about autism today. I'm so excited to do this. And I'm so excited we have listeners, right? (laughs) I know. Uh, Maybe it's just a few, but at least we have some. Um, So first as a lead in, in our, in our last, you know, true episode prior to the mindfulness, we talked to a mother, Sylvia, about the experience of having a diagnosis of autism for her son, who was 17 months old at the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. And she had so many helpful examples of things to say. It was a great episode. Yeah, it was. Uh, and I just re-listened to the episode and I was really struck by a few things that she said, and I wanted to spend some time following up. Uh, she said that, she, that they, as a couple were really shocked by the diagnosis of autism, that she didn't really have a frame of reference with other children, kind of because of COVID and other reasons. And, and everything that her son did just seemed to be so perfect. And, and I listen now and I kick myself for not immediately responding to this because I wanted to say that he, he is still perfect. He has autism, but he is still perfect. Yeah, I know. I know. We both thought it and I guess we should have, we didn't say anything. I wish we had in the moment. Yeah. I hope it's something that I convey in my feedbacks that having autism doesn't make a child any less perfect. I am not sure that it's exactly a myth that needs to be debunked, but it's a, it's a commonly held belief and, and I'm hoping we can debunk that. Totally. Totally. Really, you know, nothing has changed about the child. It's just our ability to understand that child's experience has changed. We, we now have a better understanding. Yeah. It's kind of tricky and nuanced. Autism is a disability, and that means that it's likely that the child is going to face some challenges and that learning may be different and even harder 
than for a child that doesn't have autism. But it doesn't make him or her less than, it just makes him different. And we wanna be sure that we're all thinking about differences, not as imperfections, but just as differences. In the world of autism, there is a term, uh, neurodiversity. It's really a term in the, in the disability um, community. And it's picked up momentum recently and become a, a really important part of any conversation about autism. Yes. And Sylvia even mentioned it. Um, and I should have done one of my pause moments to define that term for our listeners. Well, here's the time. Let's pause now and have you define it. All right. So this is just the beginning. We'll, we'll spend some more time on the topic of neurodiversity in future episodes, but neurodiversity is the idea that all brains are different and that rather than thinking about someone with a disability as having deficits or lacking abilities, the emphasis is on thinking about how they demonstrate their abilities in different ways. Yeah. So it's really a, just a reframing of disability. And in this case, autism to focus on the ways that people explore and understand the world differently. So let's think about some examples of this to really help our listeners understand like sensory differences. Some people find certain noises or sounds to be very overstimulating and aversive, specifically thinking about um, filtering all the sounds that can happen at once. Um, you know, as I was kind of sitting here thinking about this, the heat in my house kicked on, I can hear a neighbor running a lawnmower, my computer fan kicks on if I've been recording too long. Um, and then there's also the sound of the person who's talking that I'm trying to attend to. And most of the time I just filter these things out and don't notice that. But for some individuals who, you know, have certain sensory differences, this can be really overwhelming and it can make it really hard to concentrate. And this, just you doing this right now and just kind of thinking about your experience and imagining what the experience of somebody else might be, it is really what the neurodiversity movement is, is teaching me um, and teaching lots of us. It's, it's about perspective taking and, and thinking more about the, what the experience in life is for people with autism. Um, what might it be like to have such an aversion to sounds? Uh, you know, is there anything that I can do um, to lessen that impact? You know, Jess, it really makes me think about what we know about newborn babies. Um, so if you've ever had to take a newborn into a large gathering, not probably in recent years um, or a new environment that can, it can really easily become overstimulating for that baby. And when that happens, they typically either zonk out, you know, they fall asleep or they scream and cry hysterically. And, um, it seems like people really understand this about newborns. You know, everyone kind of gives that like knowing smile and nod and, and we just kind of understand. And, um, but we don't always seem to have the same level of compassion for older children or older individuals when they're experiencing similar levels of sensory overload. So, Neurodiversity really helps us understand the perspectives of neurodiverse people, including those with autism, and hopefully results in just a more welcoming and um, accepting spaces too. That's such a great example. I'm really glad you you brought that up because I do, I hear that a lot from, from families that they just wish other people, you know, that people had that, that kind of compassion. So hopefully, hopefully, hopefully we're moving in that direction. Um, you know, and we're going to talk a lot about 
neurodiversity in later episodes. Um, you know, I think we'll just weave it in. We'll have full episode, but we'll also just kind of weave it in. Um, this is just really the tip of the iceberg. Um, but something that's important to put out there now as parents are really wrapping their heads around what it means to have autism and learning about autism. Totally, totally. So yes, as you said, we'll do more on neurodiversity later. Um, but you know, what are some of the other misconceptions that we want to address? Not, uh, things that aren't true or maybe commonly held myths about autism, Jess? Yeah. Well, today we are going to invite our guest. We have a guest who is one of our close birth to three um, partners. She's a special educator who works with families at various places in this journey. And she's got a lot of experience and has heard a lot of these kinds of questions. Um, let's get her on here now and she can tell us what those are and see if, she, if we can answer some of her questions. Awesome. Hi, Kate. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode today. Hi, I'm really excited to be here. Yay. Yay. So, Kate, before we get going on questions and stuff, remind us, remind us and, and our listeners what you do as a, as a special educator at birth to three Yeah, I know. That's a good question because special education is always thought about as being in schools from kindergarten on. So in early intervention or in ESIT, special education um, or special educator really focuses on supporting child and family around early developmental milestones. So social emotional milestones, play milestones, language milestones, adaptive milestones. Um, And I'm really here to kind of support the learning of the child and also help coach family around strategies um, and addressing some of the differences um, in the way a, a kiddo may learn. I also specialize in supporting um, autistic children and their families. So that's also a big part of my role um, as well. That's awesome. So Kate, you mentioned ESIT. Can you tell us what that acronym stands for? Yeah, it's for early supports for infants and toddlers. Um, And it's really, we're trying to move away from the language of early intervention and go towards more early supports because that's what we do. We support um, children and their families in, in, in helping them to, um, help their, their kiddos grow and learn during this early zero to three age. Okay. So that in Washington state is what, you know, Jess and I sometimes refer to as birth to three. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. We can't, we never can figure out which, which term. To <laughs> I use. know. Hey, I want to pause for just a minute because I noticed that you use the term autistic child. And I think a couple of our other listeners have also used autistic child. And, and there really are two um, camps of, of, of people or belief in terms of how to refer to a person with autism or an autistic person. And, and, and this is identity first versus person first language. And um, most parents that I encounter of young children usually use more of a person first language. So say a child with autism, Um, And then most adults with autism use identity first language, which is autistic person. Um, And so I think in this podcast, we may lean more in the direction of using person first language. 
Um, but, but many, many people on the autism spectrum use identity first language. There's not a right or a wrong. Um, and we certainly want to try and do just kind of what we're doing here, which is sort of inner intersperse, you know, both terms. And in my experience, I kind of wait for the, the family or for the person to let me know how they want to be referred. Do they want to be referred to as a person with autism or do they want to be referred to as an autistic person? I just want to just, just lay out the, the terminology there. And um, just in case our listeners are curious. Yeah. And really why you might hear both on this podcast. Totally. Too. Yeah. Um, so Kate, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of get us onto some of our questions here. You, you've been present for feedback sessions with families who are just first learning that their child has a diagnosis of autism and, you know, you've really helped families at different stages. Tell us a little bit about what that's like. Yeah. So oftentimes, um, after a child is diagnosed, I am usually the first provider to kind of be there for that next session. And when I ideally, I love to also be there during the diagnostic process so that I can kind of see and understand what that family's experience was, hear what the diagnostic professional had has shared with family and then support that conversation ongoing. So ideally I love to be there during the diagnosis. And then for that first session afterwards, I love to just check in with families, see how they're doing, um, see if they have any questions that pop up first, um, mm-hmm. and then support any of those questions or wondering, wonderings yeah. that family may have. Yeah. And kind of along those lines, what, what would you say is the most common question that your families have as they're just really first processing this new information about their child? Yeah. I think, um, one of them is just wondering what, autism may look like later on in kiddo's life. Um, wondering kind of, will my child talk? What will they look like when they're 10, when they're teenagers, when they're adults? Um, and that's a really great question. Cause I love that families are thinking ahead and wanting to kind of know what their kiddo's life is going to look like. Um, and usually my, my response is we don't know yet, right? Kiddo is really young. Um, we have lots of time to learn and grow and Um, so I, you know, we can't predict that as, as providers, but we do know that the earlier a child gets a diagnosis, the earlier we really can know and understand how that kiddo learns and then support that learning. So, um, that's why we really promote, um, helping family pursue a diagnosis at these, this early birth of three, ESIT zero to three timeframe, because we know that it really supports, um, the child's outcome in terms of learning new skills. Yeah, I am. Um, I get that question a lot too. Like, you know, pretty immediately, often, like, what you know, parents jump to, like, what's this going to mean long term? And I totally get it. Like, I, I'm sure I would do the same thing too. Like, you just, mm-hmm. you hear the news, and you're, you know, you're here in the moment, but you're also thinking, you know, 20 years from now. And and I try you know, I, I understand why they go there. And I, what I try and do is just really encourage them to not get too far ahead of themselves to sort of take it one step at a time. You know, this, they have a diagnosis. Now we know, you know, some evidence-based treatments and, and therapies let's, let's try and get, you know, get moving on some of those things and, and, and see how it goes and, and not, 
get too far ahead of ourselves because we there's so many different outcomes for individuals with autism. Um, some people, um, you know, have jobs and marriages and children and, um, you know, and some people need to live with their, their parents for the rest of their lives. And we, we at two and a half, three years old, we can't really tell who's going to, who, who's going to be in which category or where else in the middle of that spectrum they're going to be. So as, as worrisome as sometimes it is, I really try and have parents, um, slow down and not get too far ahead of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, one thing I just think about too, with this is, you know, I love that Kate, that they have an opportunity to talk with you as a trusted provider. And I think that's something that we always encourage parents, uh, particularly when they are diagnosed before the age of three is to go. The first place they should go back to is their birth to three providers, because, um, I've, I've spoken to a lot of parents over the years who have had really different responses to that question based on how they get the information and kind of interpreted the same information differently. So we all know that, you know, reading something in an email, we can interpret that in a very different way than if someone sits down with us and really listens carefully to our concerns and says, you know, I I don't know what's going to happen, but here's why we're doing what we're doing. As opposed to, you know, I've had parents who have read email responses that say, I don't know. And parents interpret that as, I don't know, you know, in kind of this, this more negative way that, that, um, that there's kind of meaning assigned that the child might not aspire to some of the things that they're really hoping for. So I think it's really important for parents to have somebody who they can talk to about their questions. And, um, and I just, I so appreciate that, that you are there for families to do that. Yeah. And, and we do like to highlight like a strength, we do would love to do a strength-based approach, right? So we're always going to continue to highlight, like, these are the strengths of your child. These are what continue to be the strengths. And we're going to take those strengths and really build off of them. Um, now that we really truly understand how they learn and create more of these opportunities for an ideal learning environment for, for these kiddos. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a common question. And, and I love the idea of let's not get too far ahead. Let's do one day at a time. We're here to support you until kiddo is three. And then we're going to be the support to connect you to that next service or school. Um, and that often I know helps families feel like better about the diagnosis and knowing that we have this partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really appreciate, uh, appreciate when families have that partnership too. Um, and, and you for doing, doing that work. Um, I think the other thing that I didn't want to get lost in the shuffle with that question has to do with other, um, you know, concerns or questions parents have about um, outcome and what, what's going to happen, you know, what, what kind of skills the child's going to be able to acquire. And I know one of the ones that I hear a lot, because lots of the kids that I see are not talking. Um, so, you know, usually at under three, when we're making a diagnosis of autism, you know, there may be some words, but, but kids are not verbally fluent. Um, and so parents often are come to us and they come to you first and foremost, because their child's not talking. And the question that I get is, is he, is he ever going to talk? Um, and, and my answer to that is we don't know, but most individuals with autism do successfully develop a way to communicate. 
it may not be verbal, um, but but have some kind of means of communication. And um, and you know sometimes they they develop language, verbal language, you know at two, sometimes they develop it at five or six, sometimes they, they don't at all. And then, then there are other alternative ways of, uh, of helping kids communicate. Um, so just wanted to, to, to say that too. What else, what are some other, um, some other questions that are kind of tough to answer or that families sort of grapple with? Um, any other common questions that, e that really any of us can think of um, that would be helpful to, to bring up here? Yeah, I mean, based off of your your comment around language and communication, I I do oftentimes have families that say, um, you know, in a month or two, or, or when we're working together, they'll say, oh, my my kiddo's talking now. Um, does that mean they still have autism? Or oh, they're they're now playing a certain way. They're more engaged with me. Does that mean they don't have autism anymore? It, are they fixed? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that definitely falls under this umbrella and understanding of neurodiversity, and that really my response is, is that all kiddos that get an autism diagnose, diagnosis were born autistic. That is how their brain um, developed. And that is the learning, that is how they learn and process the world and process information. And so at no point in time, it does autism A, need to be fixed or B, there's no such thing as kind of a quote unquote cure or um, um, or a child not having autism anymore. I think that when families share that, it's really highlighting like, yes, children will often build language. They will grow and learn and mature um, in, in how they understand and perceive information. And um, so, I think that that's a big misconception is just thinking that, oh, they can now do this and that. And so they no longer have autism, but knowing that autistic children, teens and adults are, are very smart and um, build a lot of awesome skills throughout their life. And so I think just, again, focusing on that strength and being like, yes, great, we have language. Yes, we're playing this other way. Let's continue to work on this. That doesn't mean that they're no longer autistic. Um, but that just means that they're learning and growing and, and we want to support that. Yeah. Good answer. I mean, you have great answers that there, you're always going to have autism. Um, but you know, hopefully skills are going, you know, you're, you're going to gain skills and, um, and, and things like that. So I, I, I like that answer. Um, any other things? I mean, you, um, work a lot, Kate, with uh, families for whom English is a second language, um, you know, families, frankly, who, who don't really even speak English at all sometimes, um, mm -hmm. or that are recent immigrants uh, to the United States. Is there anything um, that's special or different about some of the questions that those families have or some of the struggles um, that you help them through that would be helpful for our listeners to hear about? Yeah, I would feel, I feel like oftentimes with those families, there's kind of an even larger um, misunderstanding of, of autism. And oftentimes a lot of the, the, the previous countries or cultures that they, that they identify with um, have a really different understanding and knowledge around autism. So it's a lot more educating 
these families about what autism is. Um, and well, there's a lot of more stigma. I think a lot yes. of times, a lot of the countries um, that the, uh, the families that I work from, with from different countries, you know, experience a lot more stigma, a lot more shame, not mm-hmm. wanting to, you know, to tell family members, um, you know, uh, at home or here. Uh, and sometimes I think the worry, of course, is that that's going to create more isolation, you know, that yeah. they, if they don't have a disability community here, um, mm-hmm. and that, that they're going to really, this is going to f- make them feel more isolated and stuff. So yeah. I, I know that part of your work and my work for sure is, is, is helping to figure out how to help them build community and help them build acceptance and get to a point where they feel like they can, um, talk to family members about this. Yeah. And like you said, a lot of self-blame, like, is it because we moved here? Is it because we speak multiple languages at home? Is it because, you know, I, I don't have a community yet. Is it because the kiddo's not socializing with, with others. So it's really, you know what, I want to pause on that one too, because I think I get asked the question a lot, um, about dual language families. Mm -hmm. And, and we actually do know that, um, that it's best for family, for, for parents to speak in their native language to their child. Um, yes. and, and that really infusing children with a rich language environment is really, really important. And, and children, there's, there's research to support the idea that, or the fact that children with autism um, who are exposed to two languages maybe are a little slower to develop in both, language, both languages, but are, but are capable of acquiring the dual language. And so definitely it's important for families to continue to speak their native language with their, with their children um, and not uh, feel like they have to switch over to English, especially if English is not comfortable, you know, because then that's going to thwart your, your, your fluency and and you're not going to really feel comfortable speaking in front of your child. And it's important to just to, to be comfortable and to be fluid in, in whatever language that the children are really hearing hearing lots of languages so yeah they get that question a lot and we also promote that and if we think about kiddos getting older and starting school right maybe at age three or at age five um they're going to hear English all the time and so that's why it's so important to continue that native language at home especially in those early years so they they have this repertoire like you said of of lots of language that feels more comfortable for family and that child can can hear consistently Mm-hmm. And especially I know, too, I know for, okay. oh, sorry, Jess. I was okay. just going to say, especially too, for opportunities to remain connected with extended family and, you know, the, the family culture, I think, you know, not limiting that, um, that native language is really important as well. Um, we also have a resource that I will link in our show notes too, for this, um, about families who speak multiple languages at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a a big, another big importance for this family, as you'd mentioned before, is just helping them to connect with a similar community. So they feel like they're not alone. So they understand that others in their same community have also experienced and have gone through this process. Um, And like you said, it helps families feel supported and know they're not alone and, and helps erase the stigma that oftentimes comes up with these different, um, with these families that have these different backgrounds. And, you know, several of our uh, previous moms who have been on the podcast have talked about the importance of, of finding, you know, community, finding that other mom who has a child that's the same age or a little bit older. And, you know, as much as we want to be able to support 
um, our families, oftentimes having having a friend or a, a, another parent who um, who has a child with autism, you know, is is a really 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 helpful and valuable thing. So um, yeah, we it, it's actually my secret dream. You know, Ashley knows this to be a matchmaker. I always meet moms of kids with autism and I think, oh, I want to match this person up with this person because they'd be so, they'd be so great together. And I and say it's a not exactly. so secret dream. It's, it's a not, not so, so secret, secret dream. I, I haven't figured out exactly how to do it, but, um, but I know that there are different groups around our area, um, mm-hmm. that, that, that support that. And, um, and I think, yeah, that's really important. Yeah. And I, I also, we run a a parent support group and there's lots of other parent support groups out there that as providers, we make sure to connect families with, um, so that they can connect with families that have gone, that are going through the same process. Um, and of course we, you know, we use interpreter services and, and other services that kind of help these families that, that might need, um, support for language. But yeah, I think most important is to connect those families with with other families that they can really relate to. Mm-hmm. One other thing that you touched on uh, that I want to make sure that we address is the idea that a parent sometimes has guilt and worry that they cause this, mm-hmm. and and this is not something that is that is caused by anything that that parents have done. It's just the sort of likely genetic, primarily genetic. And it's just the coming to, together of, of genes from each parents in this certain kind of way. Um, and so that, that's, that's the cause of autism primarily. Um, there's nothing that parents could have done to, to keep that from happening. Um, and yeah, so I just want to make sure to sort of debunk that as a myth. Is there anything else, either of you guys that you can think of that you hear parents um, wondering and questioning that we want to just come right out and say, Hey, that's, you know, that's not true or try not to worry about that. Um, I think tagging on here, I'm answering my own question, the genetic piece, because we do know that, um, that, that is primarily genetic. That does mean that a younger or siblings, full siblings of children with autism are more likely um, to also develop autism or other related, um, things. And so it's, it's, it's still low statistically, but it's more likely. And so just kind of keeping that in mind, um, and keeping an eye out and reaching out to your resources as early as you can about that, I think is important. Yeah. I think that, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say another one that families often, need support in is, is how do they share this diagnosis diagnosis with their family members, with their community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that as providers, we, we want to make sure we're supporting and helping family create language or like a script that they could have to feel comfortable in sharing this with family members, as well as supporting with online resources and links that they can, that are, um, valid that they can share with, with others to really help people understand what they're going through and what, what their child is going through. Um, and I hear that's a big struggle. Families get a diagnosis and then they don't know they're not ready to share or they don't know how to share. And so as providers, we want to, we always make sure that we're checking in on that and, and helping families feel comfortable and, and advocating for their child and also sharing, sharing this diagnosis that can be, that can be hard for, for people. 
I love that. And that gives me an idea too, for a future episode, because I think one of the things that I hear people say a lot after their child has been diagnosed is, um, that, you know, friends, close friends or family in a very well-meaning way will say things like, oh, there's no way he has autism or, um, no, no, that's not autism. He looks at me or, you know, really just partially coming from a place of not knowing a lot about autism, but also, you know, thinking that maybe what they're saying is really helping the parent. Um, when the parents in this kind of confusing place of just trying to try, maybe they're in agreement with the diagnosis and want to get to the point that they're moving on and, um, and moving forward and having to kind of convince people of that diagnosis, um, isn't always an easy spot for parents to be in, in those early days too. So maybe we can do a, um, an episode for friends and family. Yeah, that's a great idea. And, and again, that's, we're kind of finding those other parents of children with autism, uh, you know, that maybe are a little further ahead in the journey and have had the experience of, of, um, you know, convincing the mother-in-law or, or what, whomever, um, you know, sometimes those, those relationships and those experiences can be, can be really helpful. So yeah, yeah good, good point. I'm that's, looking that's at the good. time and I want to, um, I want to be respectful of your time, Kate. Okay. One, wait, last... one more thing. I only yeah. have one time for one more thing. And then we're going to say goodbye. Cause the other thing that I hear in families, um, question me about has to do with losing skills. So mm-hmm. my child has some skills right now. And it, is he going to w- regress? Is he going to lose skills? Is he going to get worse? Um, and, and there are lots and lots of, um, opinions about this. I, I've been doing this work for 20 plus years and, and I really don't, see kids at age two or age three who have um, skills, lose them. I I think this is sort of a baseline and then kids gain new skills at different rates, sometimes very rapidly, sometimes very slowly, but, but I don't see kids losing skills. So I really want to reassure parents that, that um, it's, it's highly unlikely um, that, that a child is going to stop doing things that they're doing currently. They're just going to continue to grow. Um, The one one thing that sometimes can can feel like a regression or feel like a worsening, quote unquote, is that at, at this young age, oftentimes children aren't talking. Um, and then when they develop language, sometimes their language is a little repetitive. Sometimes they do things like echo what, what somebody else said. So you say something and then they say it back, or they take these kind of pat phrases from television or from elsewhere. And it's called like a scripting or a stereotype language. So it could be that, that once they develop language, their language seems like it's repetitive. That's not a, that's not a regression. That's just that now that they have language, we can, we can characterize it better. Um, so I really want to reassure parents that, that, um, that they, they shouldn't be worrying about regression. They should be really focusing forward, forward a little bit on like what the next steps are. What's the next, you know, what, what can I do next month? What can I do in the next year? Um, and, and hopefully we've provided them with some tips and, and they have somebody hopefully in their life like Kate um, or another awesome special educator or birth to three provider um, who can help support them in these next stages. So Thank Absolutely. you so much, Kate, for being here. Yeah. Really Thank you for your time, your Kate. I, know. I love working with you guys. And then it's also really exciting to do something like this together. So thank you for inviting me. This was yeah. great. Well, I, th- I think we'll have you back. I think, I think we yeah. have more to do with you on this, I'd love to on be this back. podcast. Yeah. 
I think this is so important for families to have access to and to share. So I also share this podcast with my families and it's so nice to have everything in, in one, one podcast, one resource, and it's really special. So thank you guys. So there we go. We've got listeners from Kate. We've got Kate's listeners. Hi to Kate's listeners. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) All right, you guys. It's time. We had a good time. time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This podcast represents the opinions of Drs. Ashley Penny and Jessica Greenson and our guests on the show. The content here should not be taken as clinical or medical advice and is for information purposes only. Because each child is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional with any specific questions. Views and opinions expressed on the podcast are our own. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we're sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast, and in no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Thank you.